Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. Hey, Chris. Hey, Serge. So, a while back, we talked about free software and funding models, but what we didn't talk about was actually structuring a community. So, we have a guest with us. Yes, uh, someone I've worked with for quite a while on quite a few things, and uh, I think is one of the, you know, one of, definitely a beloved figure amongst many of, you know, all the great things she's done in free software, and we're just so excited to have her on. Uh, Deb Nicholson, say hello. Hi. It's great to be here. So Deb works uh, for Conservancy, but I um, I am going to mess up her title if I say it. So Deb, can you say <laughs> what you do? Yeah, uh, I am the director of community operations. So I work with a lot of our projects on governance and figuring out how to do decision making and how to make plans. And then I also uh, am responsible for a lot of our outward facing community efforts and our uh, our work to work with the rest of the community and free software. That's perfect because we wanted to talk about community. So Chris, you and Deb worked on a project called Media Goblin. Um, So for people who aren't familiar with that project, can you tell us a little bit about what Media Goblin is? Sure. I guess I'll describe a bit of like, you know, how it worked. And then maybe Deb, if you want to explain how we got to work together on it. Uh, Yeah. um, So Media Goblin, you know, the the goal of it is to build a decentralized um, media-centric social networking uh, service, you know, like a YouTube or SoundCloud or, you know, basically any media type that you wanted to host but have a social media experience around that's that's what we wanted to do with Media Goblin. And uh, since it was decentralized, uh, eventually we found we needed to work in, uh, you know, having a federation protocol. I'm not going to talk about that because I think the work that came out of that uh, as in terms of building a federation protocol is something we're already talking about on this show. But yeah, that's that's basically what Media Goblin is and what its, its goals are. Yeah. And so uh, Chris and I met each other when I was working at the Free Software Foundation uh, and we had all been posting on Identica, I think. And yep. you started talking about wanting to build this social network that was organized around the user instead of around the media type. And I thought that was really exciting. And then we ended up talking about it and it seemed like, oh, we also had a lot of the same ideas about the ways that we wanted to build free software communities that were really aligned. All right. So let's talk. So you guys said what the the goal of the project was from a, I guess, product standpoint, right? What we would traditionally think of as like, okay, we're going to create this thing. Here's what it, here's what it does. But I know for both of you, because Chris, we've talked about this many times, you also had some community goals and either one of you, what were your community goals? I know one of the things that I felt really strongly about was that we wanted to make sure that we built something that users would enjoy using and to make sure that we had, like, a good uh, feedback loop between us and the people who were using the software so that we didn't spend a lot of time building something and then, like, ta-da, here's something you didn't want and won't enjoy using because that's, well, that's kind of sad. But we also had some really specific goals around the community. We wanted to make sure that it was a community that felt welcoming where any kind of person uh, felt like they could contribute, uh, where we highly valued uh, not only code contributions but other contributions, that anyone who kind of came to Media Goblin in any way, shape, or form was like, hey, welcome, we're glad you're here, and they felt like, you know, we meant it. Yeah, Uh, and I feel like we did a pretty good job there. Uh, I mean, I think we... Some of the ways in which we tried to do that for was, for instance, we would, uh, whenever we would put out a release, we would put a, you know, the thank you for everybody who contributed to that lease, a release. And it didn't matter if you made a code contribution or if you contributed some icons or if you uh, wrote documentation mm-hmm. or, you know, or if you actually did some, you know, like meeting structure, structure organizing or something like that. We considered all of those things to be important contributions to getting the release out. Yeah, we had, uh, I think, one release in particular we listed 
a friend of mine who had lunch with me to talk about how you do a better job of setting up a user experience uh, kind of feedback. Right. Um, though I think when when it came down to it, I remember when I counted the number of contributors, and I think these ones were as in terms of people who either made code commits to the code base or that we we knew made um, something that was visible in the application. Towards the end of Media Goblin's life, it was approximately about 100 contributors, which uh, is pretty sizable for a free software project. It's not the largest, but a large portion of, I think, how we ended up getting there was... I think because we were trying to be really welcoming for for con- contributors of all kinds. Yeah. So thanks for the description. Um, that helps, at least for me, because I didn't actually use Media Goblin. Helps me understand it. And so what I'm hearing was that Media Goblin had three distinct user groups, uh, and they and they could people could be in multiple categories, but you had sort of end users, or that that is people that would just visit a website that used Media Goblin. So maybe, you know, their favorite artist would be using Media Goblin, or I think a lot of conferences use Media Goblin to host videos, for example. Um, Then you had people who were installing Media Goblin. So those might be those artists or people running those conferences, or um, and maybe there's another group that that you guys can talk about. And then you had developers. And for me, that's an important distinction, because in the commercial world, you really have two groups. You have the... Um, you know, the end user or the customer, right? So the, the people that are either paying the money or staying on the website to generate advertising revenue for the, for the company. Uh, or, and, and then you have the developers. And of course, you know, a company will want to attract developers, but their primary incentive is going to be fiscal, right? They're gonna, they get paid to work there. So that's why they work there. Um, but you have a different problem in the free software world because you have these three distinct groups and you want to attract all three. And, um, and in many cases you're there, these, these, um, the installers, well, the installers aren't getting paid, but they're also not paying anything for the software for the, usually. And the developers are often not getting paid. So you have to use a different incentive structure to attract them. And that could be cultural meaning, you know, credit, or that could be appealing to their altruism or their shared goals of free software. Um, And I think that's interesting and important. And we don't talk about that in the free software world, which is like, hey, we we have a whole different set of problems in structuring our projects than the commercial proprietary world does. So, uh, A, I want to hear your thoughts just, you know, I think Media Goblin is a nice, uh, is a nice test case or a nice, um, sorry, not test case, but a, a nice uh, example. But um, does that sound right? Is there something I'm missing? Tell me more about that and then sort of the general of free software. I think you're right that those are the three categories in Media Goblin's case and I think also many other hosted software case, yeah. right? Like, so, um, you know, Mastodon or, you know, MediaWiki have pretty much the same breakdown that you described uh, um, for this kind of client server stuff. And then you, we also have things like um, GNOME, where I think like, you know, like desktop software, where I think, you know, usually I think those public and the user, it, like the general public and the user categories kind of collapse in some ways. Um, uh, but you're right. Those are different categories we need to think of. And, and I also think you're right that the developer category is very different for proprietary commercial software than it is for community-oriented free software. um... Yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, there are things that you would put up with for money that you would not put up with in your volunteer work, or that you shouldn't, uh, in my humble opinion. Uh, But, you know, it's, um, I think... For the the public, you want it to be, like, really clear what it is that you do, what you offer, and whether that's an alternative to, like, a proprietary software thing or whether it's an improvement that proprietary software doesn't offer for, um, you know, and and as Chris mentioned, sometimes the public and the user, it depends, uh, like, how hard it is to install, how much of a... Uh, decision-making people feel like they're doing. Or where it's installed. Or where it's installed, yeah. Um, but it's, uh, and then for developers, like it's, uh, 
uh, I can't imagine voluntarily sending your spending your time on something that uh, where people were mean and nasty to you. Right. So I think. Um, so I think the developer thing. So so we should go through these categories one by one. So let's talk about the um, the users. Uh, and I'm going to talk about kind of the public users and the, you know, even though they kind of split apart in the, whether or not it's a client server thing or whether or not it's a desktop hosted thing. Mm -hmm. Um, the, uh, I think that there, there is some similarity in terms of how you end up presenting things for users, right? You know, the, um, if somebody isn't currently a member of a community, mm-hmm. you still want to be able to draw them in. And the way that you draw them in tends to be, um, you know, not only what features you claim that you have, mm-hmm. um, but kind of the signaling that you have about, you know, like, I think there's there's sometimes some more unconscious things than just the, uh, um, or, or some more subtle things than just like, you know, FUBAR provides X, Y, and Z, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the signaling you talked about. It's sort of like um, making people feel like they're a part of something as opposed to, uh, you know, like they're, you know, people always say, if you're if you're not paying for software, then you're the product. But that's not the case in free software. We're not, like, collecting people's information. And so, so you can say it in the negative, like, we're not collecting your information and doing all these terrible things to you. But you could also say, like, Oh, you should feel good about using the software because you're helping to build like a a freer web, or um, you're helping to uh, build software that can be used by people in places where you know the proprietary option isn't an option. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in in there we can break down a bit more about how we approached um, those categories specifically. Um, I I think that from the develop um, just to give a quick separation between those things the way that we approach things with developers in some ways i think it was it has been similar in the projects that i've worked on Mm -hmm. right like um the messaging about well i mean so you you've talked before about some of the kind of you know like the how the messaging can make people feel like whether or not they're going to be welcome Mm -hmm. in some sort of project either as a user or a developer i think right yeah um yeah i mean it's uh when you when you give examples, like you can, uh, you know, there there's ways to signal in the way that you talk about the examples for people using the software. Um, there's uh, when you thank people for contributing. Like we were conscientious in Media Goblin, and I've done that in other projects since then, um, of making sure that we thanked our non-coding contributors, and that I th- that's. One, because it's the right thing to do, but two, because it signals to other potential non-coding contributors, like, oh, hey, that's valued here, and we would appreciate you if you came to be part of our community. Right. I think in in one of the things we were very fortunate about in Media Goblin, and it wasn't, actually, I guess it wasn't just fortunate, it was intentional, right, mm-hmm. um, was that we had more than just quite a few code contributors. We A lot of the people that we had helping with the project were people who were working on documentation or people, uh, yeah, translations, people who were working on, you know, bug triage and, you know, lots of projects have this. Um, and, but I, I feel like, uh, you know, sometimes we, we kind of separate things in free software into kind of two tiers of contributors. Mm-hmm. There's the developers who are like the, the really important ones. And mm-hmm. then there's the everyone else. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And like, if you're in the everyone else category, why would you, which project are you going to contribute to? The one that makes you feel like you're just as important at, like for the things that you're doing for the equal amount of work? Or are you going to contribute to the one where it's like, oh yeah, no, sorry, second class contributions here. Right. Yeah. And I, I think what's important is also going back to the end users, uh, the people who are just you know, interacting with the software. And you gave you gave some examples of like Mastodon and um, other hosted programs and i think what's important about that is is a change in culture in free software um, i remember when the cathedral and the bazaar came out which you know is eric raymond's um, musings on uh quote-unquote open source and what eric says in in that uh essay is that software developers write so- write free software 
to scratch their own itch. And that is and that was and still is true to some extent. But what Media Goblin and, and Mastodon and a lot of these other projects are doing is far beyond scratching your own itch because you don't need the super pretty interface to scratch your own itch. And you certainly don't need friendly user documentation to scratch your own itch because that that's tangential to your specific individual needs. So what you're speaking to is is a is a shift in the way that free software is developed. Would you say that's true, not true? Yeah, I mean, and we, like, that was why we did SpinachCon with Media Goblin and a number of other projects, like... What's SpinachCon? Uh, SpinachCon is a user experience hack fest, so you, um, basically it's when your favorite fr- piece of free software has some spinach in its teeth and needs a friend to tell them, and so, uh... What we would do is get uh, a bunch of projects, uh, free software projects that wanted some user experience feedback, and then um, they would uh, set up some tasks for uh, users to do, and then those people would give feedback on how easy or difficult it was to uh, accomplish the tasks within the software. Um, and then we'd, we'd like give them spinach salad and spinach pizza as thanks. Right. Well, well, the, I think part of what you're saying there is that, like, what what that was aiming at making sure that we had the input of people who were not just the people who normally showed up on IRC, right, or yeah. on the bug tracker, being able to contribute um, and say, you know, this is important to me. Um, and I think that if we deconstruct that scratch your own itch thing, it gets kind of interesting, right? Because, mm-hmm. like, what kind of scratching can you do? Well, I think that the classic view of things still feels very code-centric, like, oh, scratching an itch is coding, right? But, I mean, there are plenty of other things that you can do and, um, and you know, that are like, oh, well, um, you know, I would I would really like it if things looked this way or I would really, it would have been really helpful if when I tried to install this program, I knew this, right? Mm-hmm. And those are just as much itch scratching. But I think maybe, Serge, what you're also driving at is that even beyond that, sometimes when we're trying to construct software, we need to think beyond just the initial kind of founders of the project set of what their possible uses could be, Mm -hmm. right? Like trying to think of what a larger group of possible users, like who are we serving in free software? Is it just us? Or is it, you know, other groups of people who aren't yet at the table? Does that sound about right? Yeah, exactly, and and, and it and it goes a couple. It goes in a couple different directions. So, and I want to get back to this uh, breaking down of barriers between the developers and other types of contributors. So, artwork developers or uh, and uh, documentation people and community organizers, because all of those have a critical role in development of large complex systems such as we're developing. Um, and you're right, Chris, that they traditionally haven't had uh, that place at the table that um, you guys, and I say, you know, both of you were cultivating in, it sounds like you're cultivating in this project. Again, I wasn't involved. Something that I was thinking about when you mentioned um, your goals in terms of end users was uh, disability and accessibility. And the way that's often implemented in you know again the, going back to the proprietary world as well you know either uh, you think you're going to get more customers or you're required to by law and so you add this in um, because because adding those kind of features is an expense right it's a it's a costly thing for free software it's uh, I've seen it in my time be added by people who were affected and so they they needed those features or they needed them implemented better. But it also sounds like you were specifically thinking about those people at these events and thinking about how to make things easier for them. Is is that is that accurate? Is or am I missing something? I think accessibility, as in terms of disability, is definitely one part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, so for I mean, Media Goblin had some advantage in that it was largely non JavaScript HTML, so it, screen readers are usually pretty you know mm-hmm. friendly towards it. And we I think we did accept some patches to make you know, a few things a bit easier. But um, but I, I think that 
um, and I think that disability is, you know, important beyond, uh, like, so, you know, there's been work in the past, like Gnome had Orca, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. The um, screen reader. Uh, the screen reader software and stuff like that. Um, and, and yeah, like working in those types of groups is really important. Although I think that there's other, there, I think that there's other issues too of, of, you know, maybe some other groups that, that aren't at the table that we, that we might be thinking about. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we, we were also thinking about like people who maybe didn't think of themselves as technical and serving that population as well. Like, so that like we really wanted to get Media Goblin to a point where it would be really easy to install. It sort of led us down some paths of encapsulation and sandboxing and things like that. Um, it was, uh, I guess, like, if you're a user of free software and you want to use a social network, then you, in order to sustain that network, you have to make it more accessible. Otherwise, it's just you know, um, IRC with pictures and stuff, but it's... Well, well, okay, so you brought up something that's actually really interesting there to me, uh, um, which is, you know, the ease of installation and stuff like that. And a lot of the way that you and I, or sorry, the project as a whole ended up doing that was actually around document. Um, and I think that in some ways we did our best to make the project, um, you know, easy to install for server administrators. And it wasn't always the case that we succeeded. Mm. Um, you know, and a lot of that was actually infrastructure wise. And you and I had this talk that we gave a few years ago called user ops. Do you remember that? Oh, it was, Oh, developer land and user land have a conversation at FOSDEM. Uh, yeah, yeah. So the idea about user ops was in some ways in contrast to, to DevOps about, um, you know, Right now, I think we have a large focus on software that's being the the difficulty of being able to deploy and maintain stuff, and the assumptions that um, the assumptions of a lot of software that's being built right now is that it's going to be built, deployed, and maintained by some sort of DevOps team at a large corporation, right? And if we really want to focus on individual freedom, we might individuals are not going to be able to have hire their own DevOps team all the time. Um, So, so I don't know. I think that that's an interesting aspect in which exploring those types of things is really important. Um, But it kind of goes back to like, who are we, who are we making free software for? Because if we're just making it for ourselves, then, you know, as Sir said, we don't have to make it pretty. Um, But if we're, if we want other people to use it, which in a network, like a software that, experience that is dependent on a large network to be interesting and fun like Mastodon or Media Goblin, uh, then it, you know, it has to be more accessible. That makes sense. And it, and it also, from my understanding and briefly looking at the project, there's a lot of emphasis that you guys have on diversity. So talk about that. And, and but I think the important question is why, what is, what is the goal because I, I know in personally talking to Chris that diversity of developers was important to you, but what was the what's the underlying reason for it? Well, I, I mean, I think we wanted software that anyone could use. And if you have a really small bubble of people with similar experiences building the software, then you end up not making something that everyone feels like they could use. I mean, there's been like some really kind of uh, fantastically bad decisions like, um, you know, like uh, with proprietary software applications like Uber leaking um, people's home addresses to folks that they might not want to have. Or I feel like I recently saw something where your boss could check your pregnancy app on your phone and see how stuff was going, which you might not want to share with your boss. Like, so there's like, you know, and those are uh, those are in particular like software that was made by men. I'm guessing because like I I can't imagine anyone who uh, has ever thought they might be pregnant looking at that and thinking like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. You should just throw that out on the internet. I I want everyone like in my womb knowing what's up. Like that's just it's uh, so- diversity helps you avoid that. You just need people with different experiences to look at your stuff and. So we did aim for some of that stuff in Media Goblin directly. And, you know, we, we, but I mean, I think this is a more than just 
you know, this is definitely a, you know, a more than just Media Goblin thing. I mean, this is a, you know, all of free software thing. And the, you know, yeah. it's it any project that I'm actively involved in these days uh, that has more than, you know, maybe two or three contributors in it. Um, you know, it it's, I'm hoping that that, that community, um, you know, I would like to participate in communities that are making some sort of effort to bring more people to the table because um, if we don't make that effort to bring more people to the table, then um, we won't be the projects that win, right? Because other, you know, even because, I mean, quite frankly, I think even a lot of proprietary software these days uh, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, even proprietary companies um, are cluing in uh, on their you know, their efforts to be able to make things, you know, accessible to a more broad group. And if the people who are theoretically delivering user freedom to everyone are not <laughs> doing that, yeah. um, then who are we reaching? You know, who, user freedom for who? And eventually I feel like um, we're going to lose out. Well, it's not, uh, to me, it's not that motivating to say, let's, Let's see if we can build something to increase the freedom of only white middle class men from Western nations. Because, you know, like our world's not perfect, but they're generally doing okay. Like it's, uh, it's not interesting to me to, uh, only, only increase the freedom for the like least marginalized population. During these breaks, we like to thank projects which are important in the free software world, and Thunderbird certainly qualifies. Thunderbird is a cross-platform mail user agent, and it's indispensable, especially if you're on a non-free platform. Thanks, Thunderbird. And we're back. Okay, when we left off, we were we mentioned money a little bit, and... You know, in, in your experience, both of you uh, working on a variety of free software projects, when you have paid contributors and non-paid contributors, especially one that's not run by a company, how does how does management, like, what's a good model for manage, for project leadership to use to figure out, you know, who should get that, those funds? Yeah, it's tricky, uh, but uh, I think the first step is to have a roadmap for code that you want to develop and things that you want to get done. Uh, and I would say, um, for projects that know they're getting money in, um, the people who might get paid by the project, uh, at least at Conservancy, we ask them not to vote on whether or not they pay themselves because it makes it really, it puts them in a really weird position. Uh, for small projects, uh, that don't know if they're getting money in, and this comes in a lot when you have grants. Um, and goes back to like some of my earlier nonprofit work. Um, at the beginning of the year, you make a budget for what you'll do if you get in a little less money than you hope for, what you'll do uh, if you get approximately the amount of money that you think you'll get, and what you'll do if you get a lot more money than you're hoping for. So you have sort of a low, middle, and a high budget that everyone has agreed to in advance. Um, if you don't talk about money before you get it, then everyone... Uh, tends to have this secret idea of what they think should mm-hmm. be done with the money, yep. and they don't match when the money comes in. Yeah, I think I think even when you're actually at the money at or before the money before the money raising start stuff process actually starts, you want to make it clear how you're intending to use the money. Yeah, your first priority is like you know, say so you have like a benchmark. Like if we get fifty grand in, we're gonna pay one person to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's and you agree in advance what that thing will be, and then you say like, if we get enough money in to pay two people, we'll do this. Yep, and in in I think another helpful thing, and not all projects need to do this. I think it was something that a number of our donated donors appreciated, and I think the community appreciated mm. was in the Media Goblin campaign. We did do a financial transparency report where we showed where all the money was going, and we mm-hmm. and so everybody was able to see what got allocated to what. I don't think all projects need to actually do that. I think that it's, you know, a nice thing yeah. for, for some to do. It also depends on what your community structure is, right? Or I, a corporate structure, actually. Like, if you're registered as a charitable nonprofit, like the Conservancy is, you have to say, 
like within a 990 form like some of how you spent your money i mean it doesn't get all the way down to like each pencil and each sticker but uh you have to talk about who your top five paid employees are and a couple of other things that uh show like how much of your uh funding comes from public funds and stuff like that yeah and i think i think oh sorry can well, I, say one I was more going thing? to ask. So, and my experience is, is, and maybe this is a little different than than yours, but sometimes a project will move to become a nonprofit um, before it necessarily knows what it wants to do with the money, and then you have these these disagreements within the organization about where resources should be uh, allocated or handled. And it sounds like what you're saying, Deb, is that within conservancy, the the very structure kind of prevents that from happening. Yeah, so we, uh, yeah, like, you can't you can't be part of the conversation to vote to pay yourself. Mm-hmm. It's just not, it, it just doesn't work out. It's really awkward. And so, uh, like, we require our projects to have a roadmap, and then they can only accept money to work on things on that roadmap. That it can't be, um, well, I mean, we have other structures in place as far as, like, who's on a leadership committee that can't be too many from one company, so you don't kind of feel that thumb on the scale. Does that also include like an industry? So I'm what I'm thinking about are hmm. maybe you'd have somebody who maybe maybe there's two different companies, but um, or even more, but but they they offer the same type of service around the project, right? So um, I'm going to create an artificial example and say, well, you know, they're all they're all doing training or they're all doing installation help because in that case it would almost be like, well, it is a disincentive to work on better installation if everybody's doing installation help or everybody's doing, you know, it's documentation is working against their business model. Um, but it doesn't sound like that's an average problem. No, uh, no. we don't usually have people advocating against, uh, I haven't run into that yet where someone has advocated against like documentation or a feature, which is great. I think, you know, like for companies that really want a very specific tailor-made type of addition to the code, the option of hiring a developer themselves to work at their company is always an option. But if you want the project to do it, then it has to be on the like the community-driven project roadmap. Yeah, I also think that it's worth... I mean, sometimes you want to be strategic about these things, right? Like, you... like. Actually, I think all of us have all been in uh, positions where uh, we've we've both, you know worked on plenty of things where we were not paid at all, mm-hmm. right? And we've worked on some things where we have been paid, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in some sort of aspect in terms of free software. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are sometimes, uh, you know, it, it's partly up to the project. What do you think you need the funds in order for the project to be able to succeed at its its goals, right? And I think mm-hmm. what's really important, the most important thing is communicating to all the stakeholders, you know, commu- being... Communication is key in so many things, and funding is is one of them, right? Yeah. What's the goal of funding something? What do you expect to get out Nothing of that? Nothing sinks trust faster than being squirrely about money. Yeah. So just be very open about it. And I think that that is the most important thing is to make sure that you and your community can align as much as possible. And it's not always going to be perfect, right? You're going to end up having scenarios where um, some people are unhappy because – well, that's going to happen, I think, sometimes when money gets involved. But as long as you're making a community-organized approach yeah. of trying to be transparent about what the goals of that money is are going to hopefully get you, um, I think that makes a big difference. And I think it, it can also be really good, you know, um, money can help in some things. We, we took some money from the first Media Goblin campaign and directed mm-hmm. it towards our participation in outreachy right Mm -hmm. and you know like the there are ways in which you know um there are ways in which you can decide um where funds are going not only as in terms of helping where the project is going to go from a roadmap perspective but also from a community cultural perspective well it it matters what you prioritize and some some projects choose to pay stuff for stuff other than development like uh, a LibreOffice had somebody working for about a year as the community herald and he was doing all promotion work Uh because LibreOffice has tons of code contributors and translators what they didn't have was somebody doing messaging and marketing so they paid for that 
So you bring up a good point, right? So the we traditionally think about free software development as software, but on large projects, there's a ton of other work. And anyone who's actually writing even small amount of software knows that you know documentation is a huge chunk of work. Writing tests is a huge chunk of work um, that can feel you know secondary to the project itself. And you mentioned in, uh, internationalization through translation. I know a lot of projects have art associated with them, especially things that are front um, or UX design. So how do you manage those people and uh, keep them coming? Because they, they seem pretty rare in our community. So in, in, in your experience, Deb, uh, with Conservancy, with so many projects, and, and your experience, Chris, um, like what's, what do you guys think of as the best way to, to keep those people, those other volunteers, um, motivated and involved? Well, I mean, I think we agree on this, like making sure that all your contributors feel valued and appreciated. Uh, and there's lots of ways to do that. Like um, you, you thank them in your release notes, regardless of what they've done. Uh, I would, um, anyone who volunteers in a project that I work with, I introduce them verbosely, like, this is Chris. He's amazing. He's drawn like hundreds of goblins for free software. And, uh, you know, just making sure that it never turns into this like, oh, we're having the real meeting over here without all of our other contributors because that doesn't feel nice. Yeah, right. So. I mean, why would you? So if you're going if, if a project is so a lot of projects do this, unfortunately, and I think, you know, Deb and I and I, I think you agree too, Sarah, that this is a huge anti pattern in projects is that a lot of them can structure themselves as the developer contributors, which are the like cream of the crop, really important contributors, and then everyone else, right? It's not that those other developers are not seen as not important, but they're not seen as like in that high tier the way that developers are sometimes. And that's that can be a real problem. You know, a number of the things that Deb mentioned, you know, we've we've done explicitly in our projects. Like in Media Goblin, we would if you were a, a user inter- if you worked on user interface stuff, we did that. We called you out in the release notes. You know, if you worked on documentation, we would call you out in the release notes. And I think that this is really important for all projects to really, you know, if you are a project that's not doing that, and there's a project over here that is doing that, and you've got somebody who is interested in contributing documentation, which project do you think they're going to contribute to, <laughs> right? I mean, if I was working on documentation, I would want to work with the group that thanks me and appreciates me for my time. Yeah. That makes, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Just, it just sounds like credit, right? Credit and attention and thanks. And, and I, yeah, credit, attention, thanks, and involving uh, everyone in your discussions about like what, what's next so that everything is coordinated. Nothing feels like stuck on at the end. Yeah. Well, and you, you, you started to, say a bit of this earlier and also deb and i had lunch earlier and uh and deb used a nice phrase which is you know it's really important to pass the mic you know around right and like what do you i i you said such a nice thing to me over lunch i'd love you to to repeat that to our audience oh i think it was just that that like sometimes uh you know uh, and if you're a project leader you often get credit for like all of the things in the project but um, one of the things that you can do is it's it's like, oh, uh, you're thanking me for work that I didn't actually do. Let me introduce you to the amazing person who actually did do that work so you can talk to them. And, and that's passing and, the mic. And not just not just thank them, but also give them an opportunity to speak and have their voice out there, mm-hmm. right? Because if you're perceived as a project leader, mm-hmm. you get more opportunities to come out there and say things than anyone else. So... It's really important, I think, when you are a project leader, if you see, oh, I could say this right here, but, you know, actually, what if mm-hmm. I could get this other person to step out and, and you know, speak about things? It, it helps everyone. So that's just good management, right? Which is understanding that the the people that are working for you should be getting credit, and then that reflects, that reflects well on you as the manager. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, like, if I saw a project that had, you know, like like a dozen different people talking about them over the course of the year versus a project that had one person that probably had hit like whatever platinum status. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of more interesting to see like all the different voices and people talking about all the different aspects of the work. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And, and you mentioned communication, uh, Deb. So let's, let's talk about communication. 
you know, when we think about free software, there's so many different forums for communication. There's IRC traditionally, there's email mailing lists. How do you manage communication through these different platforms? Or, or I shouldn't say how you, I should say how do, how do good communities do this? How, and how do they do it well? And how do you also make sure that these um, platforms are are doing it not just well in terms of high volume of communication, but quality communication and making sure that these voices are heard, uh, especially, as you mentioned, volunteers who may not be necessarily core contributors. So how, do you, how, how is that done well? I mean, the shortest version is that you set expectations and then you stick to them. Uh, of course, it's, you know, when you break that out into more stuff, like setting expectations means saying, you know, this is the kind of, uh, tone of communication that we expect. Uh, this is the kind of, the, you know, and there are some other kinds of communication that we do that we expect to not see on our mailing list or in our IRC channels. And then I, I think like also when you have meetings, like letting people know like what's going to be on topic. You can't keep people on topic if you don't know what the topic is. It's just like and any way that you can make people feel like this is this is what we expect and. Um, and we'll help you get there. So, like, if people stray, like, you know, everyone has a bad day, and you kind of think, like, we we back-channeled people on IRC to be like, oh, hey, uh, that's not really okay here. Um, you know, but it's uh, just kind of letting people know that the expectations are for real. I think that the expectations about how to communicate are definitely important. And, and, you know, when people veer for those, uh, you know, trying to give them an opportunity to correct their path, but mm-hmm. also making a, a clear line about what things aren't okay. And that's that's all really important. And I think another interesting thing is the channels of communication. We, we mentioned a few, right, mm-hmm. you know, with IRC and mailing lists and stuff like that. And these days, there's also other ones, like, uh, some of which are not even free, right? And in fact, there's, there's more communication channels possible than ever, right? <laughs> like... Uh, we have federated social networks, we have centralized social networks, we have, um, you know, we have all sorts of different chat protocols and chat services and stuff like that. And I think it can sometimes, and, and you know, sometimes projects even split themselves up where, you know, they have a mailing list and they have an IRC channel and stuff like that. And which one's the official source of things? Which one where, you know, is a bug tracker where everybody's committed their expe- mm. what they think is happening? Or does somebody just have it in their head? And I'm going to go out and say that stuff can actually be really hard to actually do. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like keeping that everyone in sync across those things can be really challenging. I mean, one one way that it really hits me as in terms of being challenging is some of the most valuable things we've done to steer various communities on track is to have things like, you know, real time meetings, right? Mm -hmm. Like over either IRC or, you know, sometimes one of the groups I do chats over Mumble and, you know, which is a, an audio, you know, chat service and stuff like that. And those are really valuable, but, you know, it, it can lead to other problems. Like, what if you're not in the time zone in which you'd be awake when we're doing the meeting, right? I think I think that's a really good point. And probably what most, most of us end up doing is doing some amount of, like, doubling up. So, like, if you, if you have the main discussion in a real-time meeting in IRC or video or whatever, then uh, you share the notes on the mailing list. Um, If you have social media, you remind people on the social media that, like, hey, that real-time meeting's coming up in case it got buried when we announced it on the mailing list. So you have them all kind of reinforcing each other so it doesn't feel like if you aren't on one, you have absolutely zero idea of what's going on you at least kind of get like a, hey, don't forget to look over here through whichever thing is your main flow of communication. So what I'm hearing is a few different things. So I'm hearing basically acting as a repeater or a highlighter saying like, okay, this is where this conversation is going on or people mm-hmm. should be aware or please come and join us here. You talked about, implicitly you talked about modeling good behavior, right? So, you know, this is how, this is how we are here. And then kind of at the lowest at the lowest level having a code of conduct as kind of the baseline like you know this is the law but there's also you know just because it's just because it's it's not against the law to put your feet up on the table you still don't put your feet up on the table right kind of thing right um so i i think you know some not everyone is very uh 
enthusiasm. Like, there's still some debates by uh, various people about whether or not uh, a code of conduct is the appropriate baseline. I think we have a pretty firm stance that, yes, it is. Um, And I think that the, the reason for that is that, you know, it's a set of norms that your community is expected to abide by. Right. You know, we if you, if you want to set a standard tone, mm-hmm. um, which where you hope everybody can collaborate respectfully, it's helpful to have a document that's there. Now, that doesn't mean that if a community doesn't have a code of conduct, that you're free to just be <laughs> an ass effectively. I, I think that um, sometimes encoding those expectations somewhere can be really helpful. Well, it's and it's helpful for the person coming in too, like. It's, it, it protects, you know, the tone and vibe that you're trying to create, but it also lets a new person know, like, hey, this is how to behave here if you want to succeed and, and get things done. Like, take a look. Um, I, I honestly don't think we do people any favors when we let them behave in negative ways um, without letting them know the impact of that behavior. Yeah, I also think that... Um, there's some debates about whether or not code of, of conduct should be like super spe- super specific, hmm. or if they should be a bit more open ended. And actually, hmm. my 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 personal feeling about that is that they should hit. You know, I I actually like the contributor uh, the is it the contributor covenant agreement? I always Maybe forget it's the name. A uh, it's got covenant in the name. Uh, um, <laughs> but I I like that one um, partly because I feel like it lays out a set of example behavior that's considered, you know, you know, the behavior that you should avoid, mm-hmm. but also says, you know, in much more broad terms, what, you know, what you should be doing. And I think that that's actually important because um, we don't want people to be rules lawyering, like, aha, I found a loophole in your code of conduct. <laughs> this is the okay behavior now, mm-hmm. right? That's yeah. not what the purpose of that document is there for. The purpose of that document is to help set a baseline of respect, yeah. In the community, um, I, I agree with you, and, and in fact, so that cup. Uh, in fact, I don't remember the name either, but it's the one we use on our our IRC channel um, for 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 this podcast. Uh, and I've also written or been part of modifying codes of conduct, and and my personal view is that they're the lowest level, right? They're not they're not you know the the modeling of good behavior. They're just the elimination of terrible behavior, and and. For things that are more friendly or for more what you want people to do, you have to, you have to model and create a a community culture. And, you know, I mentioned that I didn't, I wasn't a Media Goblin user, but I knew of its culture even, even more than I knew about the project itself and the implementation. Uh, and, and I think about, when I think about projects that do that well, um, you know, the, the, uh, I'll come back to Media Goblin because I think it's it's a useful example, but I think about, um, things like mascots, like Django has the Django unicorn. And the Django unicorn is just part of conferences. It's part of documentation. It's just, it's just part of the ether of that project. And, and I know that, that, uh, Media Goblin had goblins and they appeared in documentation and they just were, they also, you guys had some merch and they appeared on merch. Oh, yeah. We had, uh, I don't know if you know, I also work on Seagull, which is the Seattle GNU Linux Fest. Um, but that one, we use the seagull on everything. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, so it sounds, it sounds like for both of you, creating a positive community culture is, is really important and that, that there are some, um, specific steps that you take to create that. Yeah. So, think... with, yeah. Oh, so go I'd ahead. Like to talk Sorry. about that. Yeah. No, just, just don't please talk, talk about, about that. that. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I think, uh, you know, like I said, at Seagull, we try to make it really fun. Um, that's why we, we backronymed it so it would be an animal. Uh, the spinach con that I worked on, like, we, we borrowed the ganache GNU, which is a, ganache was a flash, a free flash alternative, and they had a, a really toothy GNU, and we put a piece of spinach in its teeth. Like, so, like, in addition to the, like, hey, this behavior is not okay, we try to also make it feel like, Hey, it's fun here. Like we have cute little goblins. We have like a, I've got a giant inflatable, um, like a pool floaty seagull this year for seagull. The spinach con, we ate, we ate all this spinach. It was, it was really silly. It was like, like a user experience hackathon, but then we're eating salad because it's called spinach con. 
um, which Sal can... Yeah, I think that actually in some ways, that was one of the big goals of Media Goblin, I think, that was not obvious. Yeah. Maybe publicly, or maybe it was obvious. I don't know. I think some people picked up... Well, well... So I remember, actually, I forgot about it. You said it to me a few years ago. I was like, oh, yeah, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, and I'm like, I, I can't remember how I convinced you to come to the project. And you're like, I asked you if I, like, I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to be in the project. And I, I forgot about that. But, mm-hmm. like, in, and I, it felt like one of the things we did ever fr- since the beginning, and I feel like more projects are doing this now. I don't mean to be like, we were ahead of the curve of Media Goblin. But, you know, but I, I, I feel like, it's something that's catching on more now and I think is really good is that it's important when you've got something that's really community oriented for you to nurture that community like it's a garden. I'm actually I'm a pretty terrible gardener, but I, I, I care a lot more about the gardening of my communities in terms of like, yeah, like when we did the goblins, we tried to make sure that they had a wide variety of body shapes and gender representations, even though they're just goblins. But also sometimes we would make like a weird eighties joke with them. You know, like yeah. it would like one looked like Miami Vice kinda, like one of the release artworks and you know, just to like make it like fun. Yeah. I don't think you can underestimate the importance of that. Like when I first got into into GNU Linux, the Linux Penguin Tux was a huge part of the appeal for me culturally for the project. Right? Having something cute and innocent and silly uh, is is just part of that. And, and when I think about other projects like you know, uh, OpenBSD release uh, music mm-hmm. is awesome, right? Like I think of that as a hugely important part. And you know, although I'm um, I, I uh, I'm not as much of a fan of the the internals of OpenBSD, uh, I am a huge fan of their of that part of their culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I wish I wish more projects had music, <laughs> um, you know, fun parody music. Like, and and, I, and this is and this is a topic that I think we've talked about, Chris and I, and, and I don't know if I think Deb, you and I very briefly talked about this is how we can get more fun into these projects because I think having that fun is going to increase P, uh, our our uh, enthusiasm and 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 also increase our developer base. I'd love if you could talk on that. Well, first of all, I want to say I don't think that every project needs to have either a song or release artwork or whatever, right? Partly you're leveraging what your community can bring to the table, right? Like you've got some people who, you know, the the fact that we did release artwork was because I enjoyed drawing garb, goblins, right? The fact that BSD is doing the, the music is that they have a, a culture there of people who are theoretically musicians, right? And, you know, the, the fact that um, you know, spinach con had spinach stuff in there is because, well, I think because you thought it was funny and also because you, you were like, oh yeah, I can't wait to eat some spinach pizza. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah. but, but I don't know. I, th- I think that, I think you're right that the, using the resources you have at hand in your community and letting people run wild a little bit to, uh, to do some, some entertaining things can, can really do community building. Well, uh, but I also think it, it broadcasts that, like, you know, we're here not only to make money, but, like, to do something fun and have experiences and meet people. Mm-hmm. That it, you know, it's a, if you're paying people a lot of money to come to an office, like, you don't have to also generally sweet talk them with, like, fun stuff. Can I, I'd also like to flip it around a little bit in that I think that, I mean, so we talked about this. Sarah and I talked about this in our episode three, the hacker culture episode. Um, there's, of course, a way that that can go the wrong way, right? When you're like, haha, we're having fun, and you're not thinking about the impact of those jokes or what the kind of representation that you're showing and things is, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, and, and I, I don't mean to get too negative. I'm sure we can all think of plenty of sexist and problematic uh um imagery and jokes that have become uh, sometimes been associated with with various projects mm-hmm. but uh, i mean you know i think that what we're saying here is that you should absolutely be having fun at, but also what's the message you're sending with that fun well it's just i think just taking a minute to ask yourself is this at somebody's expense yeah and if you know if it's a cartoon gnu that doesn't have good dental hygiene maybe it's okay <laughs> 
Well, somebody's going to tell them about that spinach in their teeth. Yeah, yeah, no, it's going it. to be solved. It's going to be a problem that gets solved. Yeah, I agree. It, it's it's also something that I don't think we that people outside of free software really understand is how these you know these are essentially working relationships. They're volunteer working relationships, but they're working relationships, and how they can turn into really deep, close friendships that last a lifetime. And how do we? And 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 I think that's something that that you know. It's hard to explain that to people who, who who aren't in our community, but I think is vitally important to those who are in the on the inside. I work from home, and a lot, <laughs> and a large portion of why that's manageable for me is that all my friends are online from the free software space, and I get to talk to them and communicate and collaborate with them, and and that's what makes conferences so much fun for me is I'm showing up to hang out with all my friends. You know, yeah. um, it's I, I think you're right that like. It's good to have communities where where people feel like, you know, we're friends here, you know, like this is this is my these are my people. Right. Um, uh, I don't know. What do you think that it's uh, I mean, any kind of volunteer work has to fill that niche for people. It's otherwise like otherwise it's just drudge work. Yeah. Like nobody would sign up for more of that if it wasn't like for something. And so. And and I think people have always done that. They've looked for people that share their values and want to like get things done. It's it is it is different than just getting a job. It's I don't know. It might be more analogous to like like an academic kind of thing where you kind of share like an academic interest, and regardless of what institution you're at currently, like you you still meet and talk at the annual or a couple annual things. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the commercial proprietary world has is trying to steal some of this. Oh yeah, um, and yeah. they have right. They like they've tried to make their their um, their offices feel like campuses. They're not offices; they're campuses, and they have lots of meeting spaces, and they have lots of uh, fun activities that you can participate in with your fellow coworkers. But it's different when it's it's your volunteer time, and it's it's. And it's not just that we're volunteering because I think the the other vitally important part is that we're doing this because we believe in something, because we believe in the same cause. And and that's what's bringing us together in the first place. But coming back to this contrast between us and the proprietary world, um, the, you know, for a proprietary organization, they have a very simple metric. Are they making money? You know, does the product bring in revenue? But we, especially for a project that's not, you know, funded that way, and there are some in our, in our community that are funded that way through through uh, um, through contracts. But for most projects, that's not the case. So, what kind of alternative metrics do you think are are good and worthwhile? Well, I mean, the metrics have to be connected to your goal. So, like when we were doing work on Open Hatch with the Boston Python Meetup, uh, our metric was to take the general attendance at the monthly meetups from 1% to 2% women to, uh, well, something better than that. Uh, and we did. It was, uh, we did uh, workshops. We talked about the, like, workshops for women and their friends. We talked a lot about how important uh, bringing new people in was. We talked about how we would always have a, a beginner's table at the monthly hack fest. Um and, uh, you know, we just over and over and over again talked about how we wanted it to be welcoming. And eventually the metric moved to regularly like 15% women at the monthly meetups. And the and like sharing that metric actually had this like kind of, you know, it fed on itself. Like once once people like knew that the metric was good, they would, I would hear people telling other folks like, oh, you should come to our meetup. Like it used to be like kind of a little... Not so many ladies, but now it's like about fifteen percent. And so, um, and that was our goal. Our goal was to move the needle on the diversity at the meetup. Um, for other stuff, it's I guess like how many users you have isn't one way that you could think about it. Well, that's think, tricky. <laughs> I, well, I think that I think that you know metrics is in terms of numbers are really great when you when you have them right mm-hmm. and. Uh, it's not always easy to get them. Uh, I mean, Serge and I still are trying to figure out how many people listen to this show and we're still not positive, right? You know, like, uh, um, but I mean, my, 
I guess I take a, a slightly unconventional approach. Um, and I think that a certain, I think that part of being a community leader mm-hmm. is getting a certain amount of the ability to kind of, let's say, read the room of your community and like kind of get the sense of, are people excited? Are people engaged? Are people enjoying the thing that you're putting out? Yeah. Um, like, and you can hear, and those might not be numbers. Those might mm-hmm. be, what do people say to you? How are people responding when they see a new release out? Do you see it posted to a bunch of social networks? Do you, you know, like, and for, and I, I hate to say it because it, like, I don't want to discourage the numbery approach because I think it is useful. Um, and I think sometimes, especially when you have a problem, it can be very good to have numbers. But if you want to up your diversity statistics, you should actually track those numbers and try to see whether or not you're moving upwards. Um, but oftentimes I think that, um, you know, the, not all projects need to have a large number of users. Some of the projects I think are most important and have affected me the most in my life, um, are ones that, you know, maybe myself and 30 other people use, but it has changed the, the quality of my life dramatically. And it's still a community I'm happy to be in. And you, and you never know what, what, how, how that stuff is going to end up bridging out. You know, that might, that project, which might only appear to have 30 users might inspire, Somebody yeah. to get involved in doing something else, right? You know, like I, I was a contributor to the programming language High, which was run by our, our mutual <laughs> friend Paul Tag, uh, Paul, Paul Tag Lomonte. They uh, had a cute cuttlefish, so yeah. you know they're for real. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, they, and actually, I contributed that. I, they, I, they, I was like, do you have a logo? Or do you have a mascot? And he's like, no. And I'm like, let me just find some random ASCII art I did. And I did an ASCII art of uh, cuttlefish, and I just pasted on IRC and said, it said, let's cuttlefish. And Paul Tag thought it was great. We made it the official logo. And then uh, Karen Rustad made a much nicer uh, vector version, right? And that was really cool and really fun and high, which is this lisp that runs on top of, uh, it's a, a Python with a lisp syntax. Um, like the number of users wasn't very large. But it made a huge impact on me and a number of other people I know who then got involved in other language projects, right? Mm-hmm. And it, and I think that it was because Paul Tag knew how to be able to get the energy in that community really excited, get everybody having a lot of fun, that it, it, it enabled me to lose some of my fear around, pro, like, programming languages are this thing I can never touch, right? Yeah. And allowed me to get into that 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 other stuff. So even if High never had a huge user base, I think that a more important metric was the way that it ended up, uh, you know, the way that people responded to the project. Because a lot of the effects of free software, you might never even know. Uh, yeah. Uh, a lot of the effects of free software can really be um, in the way that it changes people's lives in a way that you'll never see directly. Or, you know, the way that it helps people even also sometimes move on to other things. And so if people are happy, people are excited, and people are engaged, that's what really matters to me, I think. That makes sense. Um, I'm just thinking about, you know, you gave the example of us having difficulty figuring out how many listeners we are, we have. Mm-hmm. And for us, the the IRC channel, at least for me, the IRC channel was a big deal. Um, and as was uh, the number of uh, people we had um, on the Fediverse who mm-hmm. subscribed to our, our Fediverse uh, account. And that that helped me get an idea of, of just how many people, not necessarily who are listening, but who are excited. Yes. And, yes. and that, that energy is really the thing that feeds me. Like I, and I, and I'm, I'm going to talk about myself a little bit in, in this, in this mm-hmm. um, podcast, but you know, for every hour or so of, of audio, I probably put in three to four hours of work. And uh, putting out an episode a week takes me um, a full day almost sometimes uh, of, of work because I'm editing, but I'm also making the show notes and scheduling people and talking to you, Chris. So there's probably about a full day, sometimes more of work a, a week. A full day plus the amount that time we're recording. Yes, yes. Mm. Um, and so, you know, there are times that I get bummed. <laughs> like, I'm just like, oh, this is so much work. And 
Um, and then I, you know, can feed on, go on the IRC channel, so many people are talking, um, just, you know, when they talk about the episode that they enjoy, like, or if I see somebody on the Fediverse saying, oh, I just subscribed to your podcast, like, that, that's <laughs> the thing that feeds me, and I, I think for software developers, there's something similar, but it may not be as obvious, um, people aren't going, oh, I really love this piece of software, unless they're going to a conference. yeah. I remember at when I was doing the Stripe Open Source Retreat, um, and I, I, I'm forgetting the name of the person. I wonder if they'll listen to the podcast and, and respond <laughs> to it. But there was a person I was sitting across the table talking to, and we started, um, I, it turned out, and we were just eating dinner, and it turned out that we were both interested in Lisps. And I, we were talking about it, I'm like, yeah, I think that, you know, and I was doing my defensive Lisp syntax, and they're like, yeah, I think that, you know, the C-style syntax just kind of took off. But there's all these other things. I'm like, yeah, have you seen things like Paradit or Smart Parents or even there's this thing called Parinfer where you <laughs> it figures out where to put your parentheses based off of your white space. And I'm like, huh. it's so awesome. And the person said, I I wrote Parinfer. And I went <laughs> and I went, holy shit, that's awesome and i like gave him a high five across the table. He just looked stunned. And then his his uh um his wife actually came by uh, the next week, uh, uh, that next Friday, to pick him up, and she was like, "Oh, like he really re- like that was a big moment for him, just yeah. like that, that somebody responded in that way, like it, he like talked about that a lot, and like so like I think that yeah, like that those kind of moments, you know, those kind of moments they might not be a metric, but they're definitely a driver, and I agree those yeah. those kind of things keep me going. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I told you like I went to sweden and someone's like you're the media goblin lady because it's but they couldn't they didn't recognize me until they heard my voice uh because it's in our it was in our fundraising video yep yep um yeah or uh i do occasionally have the opportunity to meet someone who says oh open hatch that was how i got started and yeah that kind of stuff is really rewarding when you feel when you when you hear it i think so I think we've we've covered a lot of ground. Um, is there any last thoughts either one of you want to share on good community? <laughs> we did cover a lot of ground. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't want to make this purely interview. I just wanted to make sure that we didn't miss something or yeah. whatever. So I'll just uh, close up. Um, so as I mentioned, we have an IRC channel. Uh, please please join our 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 the our IRC channel. Uh, and uh, that would be uh, hash Libra Lounge on Freenode. You can also subscribe to us on the Fediverse at Libra Lounge at floss.social. We're also on Twitter at Libra Lounge. You can email us if you've got feedback or ideas for episodes, uh, podcast at LibraLounge.org. Um, and can we say that's... thanks to Deb for oh, coming yes, on this? Huge thanks to Deb. Uh, <laughs> and also thanks to Chris for going uh, and recording this on-site with Deb. That was really, really helpful and awesome. Yay. Thank you both. Yep. Well, we're going right. to do an RPG right after this. So, you know, I've got all, all sorts Sweet. of excuses to come down and hang out with my friend. All right. All right. See you next time. All right. Bye. Later. Thanks, Bye. Serge. You've been listening to Libre Lounge. You can find and subscribe to us at LibreLounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joff, which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on opengameart.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. Thanks for listening. See you next time.